This is Mark Steiner, folks, and welcome, of course, to Sound Bites, a weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future right here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today we have a very special guest here on Sound Bites. Tasha Bowens is a beginning farmer, community grower in Western Maryland. She wrote this book called The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming. And she went across America, 15,000 miles, more, uh, met dozens of people. Incredible book about people of color with their hands in the earth and in the land. We're about to talk to her, and coming up right after that, she'll be staying with us. And one of our local farmers who you know uh, from our program, Five Seeds Farm, Denzel Mitchell, will be joining us for to continue this conversation where race intersects agriculture and our food and our food movements. And first... It's Natasha Bowens and her book, The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming. And Natasha, welcome. Good to have you with us here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. So uh, let's begin. I I was fascinated by how you kind of start off this conversation with your own life Mm. um, and your family and your father and mother and who they're descended from, which has, I think, a lot to do with, obviously, with who you are, but also with why you're doing what you're doing. Most definitely. So, um, <laughs> they have everything to do with what I'm doing and how I came to be. So, um, I am the child of an interracial marriage. You know, my mother is descendant of European ancestry. My father is descendant of African American ancestry. In the South, actually, both of them hail from a tiny, tiny town outside of Greenville, South Carolina. And um, a few years back, my aunt was doing some genealogical research and unfortunately uh, uncovered the, the, the cold, hard fact that my mother's ancestors once owned my father's ancestors did there. They, did they find out, did they find that out after China. they fell in love or before they fell in love? <laughs> actually, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, we didn't find that out until actually my father had passed. So, oh, wow. um, you know, he, he never became aware of that news. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, you know, I write an opening in the book of how it was just kind of this twisted reuniting of, um, of, 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 you know, the two sides of my family coming, coming together almost as if to, to somehow heal um, from, from the last way that our families, you know, had come together in the past. And here I am a direct product of that, right? And, um, you know, I didn't grow up around farming. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. I was raised in metropolitan South Florida. And I was just not farming towns. And, you know, I did a little gardening with my grandmother. But when I started really farming and digging my hands into the soil, I wanted to dig further into, you know, how far back it was that that my own family had their hands in the soil. And, of course, we know in the African-American community and really in all of our communities, agriculture is such a big part of, of, you know, the way of life. Um, But, you know, come to find out, digging digging back and finding out that on my father's side of the family, you know, this history and and just growing up sharecropping and growing up as tenant farmers, um, you know, it was a bit, it was a, it was a bit conflicting to be, to be um, working in the field myself. No, and it, it, I mean, I was thinking about that as I was reading the book and reading about you, that I mean, the idea that a couple of things I mean, it hit me that one, here you are, this this child of both these worlds in a, in a kind of a 20th century version, 21st century version of what happened in, in, inverted from the 19th century, you know, with mm-hmm. your parents. Mm-hmm. And then that they both represent 
these different worlds of really conflict and defining where agriculture is today comes out of both your parents' past through you. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's all there. Definitely. And even in today's movement, and I write about it, and kind of why I fell, another reason why I fell into writing this book is, you know, I was in D.C. at the time, and I was kind of swept up in this organic, you know, permaculture, sustainable agriculture movement that's sweeping the nation, and really was struck immediately with how it's painted as a very exclusive, very white, hipster kind of movement, you know what I'm saying? And so to have that world and then to also, you know, see the the disparities and who's benefiting from this movement, who's getting that healthy food, you know, which farmers are out there struggling that are not being represented in this movement um, and not being supported at these new farmers markets that are popping up all over the place. Um, So again, I found myself kind of straddling these two different worlds and um, it really pushed me to, to dig a little further. A little deeper. Right. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 you had this portraits of all these fascinating people that you drove literally across country. You said like 15,000 miles you drove and more to meet all these people yeah. around America, black, white, uh, black, uh, black, Native American, Asian farmers, Latino farmers from across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, basically, well, I was kind of on my journey and struggling with all my questions and conflicts and, um, you know, just the intersection of race and food. I really wanted to hear directly from, I was I was really immersed in going to food conferences, food justice conferences, reading all kinds of books. And, you know, like I said, I was working at farmers markets and volunteering on community farms. And I just felt like there were a lot of voices that weren't being heard. I wanted to dig into stories. I wanted to connect with other folks like myself. Um, other people of color farming and pushing this movement forward in their own communities. So I just decided if there's not a platform, uh, you know, that I could see at the time that was there doing that, I was going to go out in my little station wagon and drive around the country and hear from folks myself. So I interviewed over 75 different farmers of color around the country um, and was blessed to be able to spend time with them, stay at their farms, yeah. um, and gather their story. Let's talk about some of those. I mean, it, I, there's, there, there's so many people in this book. I mean, I could spend um, several episodes of Sound Bites just interviewing you and the people in your book together. There's just so many mm-hmm. of them here. They're just amazing. But you, you start the book off with Mr. Daniel Whitaker, <laughs> the World War II He's veteran, hog farmer. and It's a great segment. Um, and you open it with Ralph Page's quote from the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, land is the only real wealth in this country, and if we don't own any, we'll be out of the picture. Most definitely, and that's a powerful statement, and I think it rings true, uh, especially for black farmers across the South, but really uh, many, many small, small farmers who are losing land at ridiculous rates. Unfortunately, um, Black farmers are losing lands at three times the rate of white farmers. And, and we know, we know who controls this land, who controls our food system. That's where the power is at. And, uh, Mr. Daniel Whitaker, he was such an elegant man. So, so he was definitely a favorite to interview. I sat with him in his home in Tillery, North Carolina. And I do want to say that he's since passed. This was in 2000. I was going to ask you that. I yeah. To, I was able to sit with him and he was 93 at the time and he just passed last summer, and uh, I was able to connect with his family, uh, who actually, they want me to come out to their family reunion and share some of, you know, share some of the stories from the oh, book. Oh, wonderful. But, 
Very cool. <laughs> yeah, very so cool. it's a great connection with all the farmers. But, but Mr. Whitaker lived in a place that is very historic. Hillary, North Carolina was home to one of the largest black resettlement communities of the resettlement era. And that was, of course, when, they, uh, when the administration, Roosevelt administration, took a lot of rural families and relocated them to different resettlement projects to try to, uh, it was, you know, another form of the 40 acres and a mule that never came to, um, just kind of the sharecropping project and experiment. And Antillery was the, one of the largest black resettlement projects. So a lot of sharecropping families moved to Tillery, Mr. Whitaker's included, and he remembered seeing his, his father and his uncles uh, sharecropping, and he from the very beginning said I, he did not want to go down that road. He didn't want to work for the man. He saw the injustices that were happening um, and just kind of this never-ending cycle of debt um, and loss that the farmers, the sharecropping farmers would go through. And he vowed that he would own his own land, and, you know, he went off and served in World War II, came back, bought his own land, and raised his hogs and his family there for the next 50 years. You know, it made me think of this, so many stories just about how black, made me think of this as, 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 as I was reading this, about how many um, black veterans of World War II and all the other veterans, black veterans of all the wars mm-hmm. we fought were at, the, were at the forefront of change uh, mm-hmm. in, in, our, in, our, in our country. And he's one of those people who said, no, I'm not going to buckle down. I'm not going to do what they tell me. I'm proud that I fought, as he said to you, in this war, and I'm going to be my own person and own my own land. I mean, he's a, he, could, he had so much character and strength, mm-hmm. you know. He definitely did. And, you know, a lot of black farmers, like you said, were kind of at the forefront of this movement of uh, really trying to preserve land, come together and form some of the first farming cooperatives were, you know, led by black farmers, especially, you know, Ralph Page, head of the um, Federation for Southern Cooperatives, one of the largest black farming cooperatives um, around, and they've been working for decades trying to save black land and, and really push that movement forward. But I think today, with the with cooperatives coming back and a lot of these um, solutions for farmers coming back, you know, I think the mainstream movement is forgetting that... <laughs> Uh, you know, who really was at the forefront of this. And we have to recognize, um, you know, a lot of these farmers. And and that's really what this book was about, is to bring honor um, to all the contributions that, you know, black farmers and farmers of color have made to our agricultural system. I mean, one thing that just struck me, I'm going to say this before we kind of roll on with more of the people that you met here, and and so many of them were these incredibly powerful women, which I just loved. Um, (laughs) Really, that's really great, that, that... that just the experience you must have had, I mean, the joy you must have had in doing this book, what you learned doing this book, and the people that kind of, I mean, the the conversation you had must have been very kind of molding in a sense, and totally molding you, you know what I'm saying? Most definitely. And you know, Mark, it sounds silly, but when I went out to do this book, I just wanted to capture these stories and share them widely, and I kind of forgot until I was sat at the knee of these amazing people that I was going to be the sponge first. Yeah, you know. right, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and it changed me, 100% changed me. I learned so much from, from all of the farmers and food activists I interviewed and had really personal connections with a lot of the farmers. Some folks I got to their homes and was able to stay in their homes, camp on their farms. And, you know, within five minutes of, of one, one uh, female farmer who I interviewed in North Carolina, within five minutes of arriving at her home, we were sat on the floor. We were playing with her dog. She was teaching me jujitsu moves. She was a jujitsu master. Which one was this? 80 years old. 
<laughs> Who is that? This is this is Carol. Oh, right. Carol and Joyce of My Sister's Farm. Yeah, and she's nicknamed Sensei because she is a jujitsu master. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it was just a beautiful experience. To, to connect with all of these wonderful people. I'd like to go through some of these. I mean, I, there's, there's so much to go through here, and I really do, um, even though we're going to have a conversation soon with you and Denzel, to have you back to, 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 to really kind of go through some of these people and talk about them. I just sure. think their stories are just amazing. And I, I, I was blown away by the book and also the people you met because I think that something's happening in America right now, at least in, from my perspective, mm-hmm. Um, that that because of all we're experiencing now with Black Lives Matter and all the other things going on in America and mm-hmm, Native people mm-hmm. leading the fight to save the environment here and in Canada, um, mm. that, that there's a, some shift is happening. And part of what I think mm-hmm. you captured in the book is the roots of people of color in this country who are farming, but also how that is part not just the 19th and 20th century, it's the shift that's happening in the 21st century you're trying to capture mm-hmm. here. Yeah, Definitely. Most definitely. I mean, um, you know, we have to honor the roots of all of these movements and the and the awesome work that's going on and the resilience, really, because, you know, these barriers and these issues that are brought up in the book, they're nothing new. Um, you know, some of the farmers I was talking to, especially some of the elder farmers, uh, you know, they're, they're tired. They're tired of still having to, to, to face the same issues, just like with the Black Lives Matter um, campaign that we see going on now, you know, uh, fighting against people who want to try to say we're a post-racial society and <laughs> just wanting to, you know, it's just so frustrating to try to get people to see that, you know, that we've come a long way, yes, but things a lot of things just have not changed. Um, but that resilience is just so important to honor um, and celebrate in our communities. And then all of the wonderful, um, you know, innovative solutions to, to tackle new issues now in the 21st century and just all of the revolutionary work that's going on today. And speaking of revolutionary work, we, should, we need to talk about um, uh, your, your piece on Tierra Negra with Taz yes. Walker and Cristina Rivera Chapman and Swarm and what they're doing. Yes, so Tierra Negra Farms, I'm so glad you brought them up because when I think revolutionary, they are at the top of my mind. (laughs) These are two young, young farmers of color um, based in North Carolina who have been farming for quite a while. And, uh, you know, Taz Walker, he's a descendant of sharecropping, um, you know, long line of sharecroppers. Um, Christina, she started out doing um, farm education for urban farms in, in New York City, and they came together, and it's also a beautiful love story. They're just a beautiful couple. They came together and started Sierra Negra Farms in, um, in North Carolina outside of Durham. And they're really, you know, they've experimented with doing, um, you know, community-supported agriculture for their community. They're also farm educators. They do a lot of education in the community. But they talked about how this movement now that we see with, um, you know, going into low-income urban communities or rural communities and working with youth and, and, and getting them into the garden and, and all these nice initiatives that we're seeing, they, you know, they really are pushing back about how that's being done in these communities and had some really great uh, insight into how, how these initiatives really need to, to, you know, Christina said a lot of these youth education programs that we're seeing happening all over the country now, you're actually leaving kids in the sand with nothing in their toolbox. You know, we're asking folks to come in, volunteer their time, you know, um, 
learn a few things, but then we're not bringing them into the organization. We have nonprofits coming into communities and paying folks from outside of the community as staff and leaving the actual community members, you know, after a year or two of having them come volunteer, you know, try out some healthy food and and just moving on. And, and that is not sustainable. You know, they really talk about uh, the programs that they're advocating for, where we're paying these teenagers, we're building leadership, we're building self-sufficiency, um, you know, building sustainability of the program so that these folks can be running the organization at the end of the day. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. um, just some really great revolutionary insight from, from them. And, you know, where we are, we are hard on the heels of the 10th anniversary of Katrina. Mm, on the 29th yeah. of this month coming up, 29th of August. Yeah. And you feature a number of people from Louisiana, and Yazin and Elaine uh, Muhammad and their Yardbird yeah, Farm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and a number of, and a couple of others from, from down that way. So that, that was an interesting experience, people coming out from the city because of Katrina and building a farm. Yes. So Yasin and Elaine, they were never farming before. They were never farmers before. They would define themselves as clean eaters. You know, um, they do. Uh, they are Muslim and they've always um, eaten halal. And, you know, they, 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 they would define themselves as clean eaters. But they'd never thought about growing their own food or anything like that. They were in the education um, system, working in the education system in New Orleans before they lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. So then they found themselves outside of Baton Rouge on some family land. And, you know, they talk about how the hurricane was really a wake-up call for them as far as, you know, who are we dependent on for our food? Of course, we know that with Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, it wiped out so many grocery stores. It wiped out food reserves. And suddenly there's no food on the shelf. You know, you don't know how to grow your own food. You're dependent on that food coming from the grocery store. Well, if the trucks can't get in because the road is washed out and the city's flooded, where are you going to get your food? Um, so this, you know, they really described this as a wake-up call for them. And then when they found themselves out on the land, they took it as an opportunity to, to learn how to uh, feed themselves and be self-sufficient in that manner and grow their own food. And now they run Yardbird Farms. And actually, the state of Louisiana sends other beginning farmers who want to learn how to raise and slaughter chickens on site to their farm because they have just uh, become so good at it. So they're just a model example of a small family farm. And I, I've got to, this, I, I almost don't know where to go next because there's so much in here to, to pull from because every chapter you do doesn't just tell the story of the people who are farming of color in this country but about the food and how they grew up and the history of it. It also talks about the political struggle that oftentimes is 100 and 100 years old that people mm-hmm. have to go through for the land. I mean, that's part of the book is, is, the, is reaching back to the history of land owned by Native people, land owned by Latino people, land owned by black people, how it was lost. And this is about a struggle to regain that land. In a Most way, definitely. Right? And, and, you know, I think one of the hardest parts of what I do relating to this book is trying to figure out how to pack all of the all of the threads that are packed into this book into, you know, a quick talk or a quick interview. I mean, it's, even the it, book itself is only about 200 pages. And I like to describe it as a conversation starter because you're, you're exactly right. Every farmer is sharing their story, but that story reaches out, branches out to so many issues, so many historic um, issues about land ownership and land loss, power dynamics, injustices, cultural food waste. Um, but most definitely I wanted to make sure that all readers of this book 
are are reminded of the fact that this land that we walk on every day, you know, did not belong to us, of course, um, and, and, and native land that's lost and continues to be lost. Um, rights that have been lost. You know, there's stories in here about Navajo farmers who are already dealing with land loss um, and, and some farming practices that have been banned or, or restricted, but they're also losing their rights to water, um, which, of course, is a problem for all farmers, but especially farmers in the Southwest. Um, and just recently, unfortunately, I heard a NPR snippet about the, um, the, the, the oil spill that happened out west contaminating once again, because it's already been contaminated by uranium, uh, the waterways for the Navajo Nation. Uh. And so it's, you know, it's just uh, unfortunately really cyclical and really um, history that just keeps getting perpetuated. And and you, I mean, you talk about Native people, you, you have this great piece in here, American Indian Mothers from, from, um, mm. from, from Lumberton, North Carolina, from Shannon, North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a, a powerful piece, along with the the way you close the book. What was the woman's name that you closed the book with? Um, Valerie Seabrook. Yes, yes. yes, she's of the Muckleshoot tribe right. out in uh, the Northwest in Washington. Yeah, there's uh, really powerful stories, and even more Native American farmers that I interviewed um, on the Hopi Nation yes. um, that that weren't that you know they decided they did not want to share kind of their sacred farming practices. Which you know I actually went into this expecting to um, kind of be turned away by some farmers who, you know, just didn't want to share uh, their cultural foodways or their sacred practices and just for fear of, you know, so many of these communities being exploited for, for so many generations. But uh, some really beautiful stories. You mentioned Beverly um, of the American Indian mothers talking a lot about health and, and you know, her organization came because addressing the health issues that are so rampant in many communities of color, you know, black community and a Latino community, um, not excluded, but, but particularly in Native American communities with diabetes and heart disease, um, you know, and she, she just wanted to do something about it. So they've started some really great programs around the farm there, um, as well as in the Cherokee Nation, the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Um, in North Carolina as well. I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. It kept pulling me back, um, who are doing some great work um, preserving heirloom Cherokee plants and giving them out as garden kits um, to, to all residents on the Cherokee Nation. Um, it's really powerful stuff. And you also, this this uh, the, 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 the chapter here that you have on f- called Fierce Farming Women, um, mm. And I, I, I would just uh, you can read it yourself, or I can read it, whatever. But the way you open that chapter, I think it's just <laughs> so beautiful. Do you want to read it? Well, let's see. I can. I have it here. So let me see. Page one seventeen. Mm-hmm. You open this chapter. It just really, it really, it, it grabbed, it grabbed me as I read it. So I, I like to share this. Okay, so not the poem, but the, your the piece. opening on yeah, your piece. On on one seventeen, you want the poem? The the fierce farming woman, yeah. That that that. Yes. Her hands are cracked. Will you start there? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's the poem. All right. So, fierce farming women. Her hands are cracked, reeling from the whipping wind, split, torn, and dotted with splinters, numb to the impact of the wooden shovel. Cuts fade and reappear, garnishing her knuckles. Her palms tell the story of the day's work etching out the lines with black soil to the edge of her fingers, retracing every inch of land plowed, every seed planted. Her forearms are brushed with dried mud, 
gum splattered onto her face. The rest is caked in every crevice of her fingernail and painted onto her faded, tattered clothes. It's too early to see the calluses on her palms, but if you were to hold her hand, you'd feel them. It's just beautiful. And to, <laughs> it really is. I mean, and to me, it captures something. That there is this, you can feel in this book, at least I can reading it, the, 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 the intense love you have for this subject, for these people, for yourself, where you come mm-hmm. from, but for women, for these mm-hmm. women, whether it's the fierce women of Alabama on her land <laughs> or the women in this piece. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's something about the women in this that is part of um, the heart and soul of this book. Most definitely. I mean, you know, according to the USDA census, women make up only 13% of farm owners in this country. I mean, this is a man's world. And as a young woman of color entering into the agricultural movement, you know, like I said, I felt really alone. I felt really frustrated. And um, once I got out on the road and was able to connect with some of the most fierce, most powerful, resilient women I have ever met in my life, um, just amazing. Uh, you know, I, I finally kind of found my sisterhood. I found mm. solidarity. And I, um, you know, it, it made me want to claim my place in this even more, which is why I started blogging, you know, on my blog, Brown Girl Farming. I just wanted to really celebrate, um, you know, being a woman in this field. And I wrote that poem, um, you know, after my first full season on the farm and looking down at my hands and, and realizing, man, nobody's going to want to hold these hands. You know, <laughs> yes, they will. What you talking about? We're so, we're so, you know, women, we face this, this, um, you know, this, this, we, we're supposed to fit into this picture of, of feminine, you know, of right. femininity, and and and, but but really meeting these women and and digging my hands into the soil, there is nothing more feminine uh, than feeding your community. Okay, nothing more feminine than tilling the land and stewarding this earth. So, you know, it was just a radical shift in, in how I looked at the hands of, of a female farmer after that. You're hearing the words of Natasha Bowens, her book, The Color of Food: Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming. And you can meet Natasha Bones tonight at 7.30 p.m. at Red Emma's Bookstore at 30 West North Avenue. More information available at redemmas.org. And later, the Baltimore Book Festival in September at baltimorebookfestival.org.com. And we'll get her back here for that as well. You're listening to Sound Bites here, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and the future here on The Mark Steiner Show on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio 90.7 FM. Uh, and we have to take a brief break. We're going to come right back. We're going to continue our conversation with Natasha Bowens about her book, The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming, and be joined by Baltimore farmer Denzel Mitchell of Five Seeds Farm to continue our look at the world of people of color and farming in our world. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Mark Steiner right here on Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. 
produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. I'm talking this hour with Natasha Bowens, beginning farmer, community grower in Western Maryland, uh, in Frederick, Maryland, where she, and she's written this book, The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming. We continue our conversation with her, joined by another guest who's been on the show many times, an old friend, Denzel Mitchell, founder of Five Seeds Farm on Apiary here in Baltimore. Good to have you both, Natasha. Glad you're here still with us. Good to have you back in the studio, Denzel. What's up, Mark? So, I would, and Denzel, you, you, you know Natasha's work, and you know her, and you know her book. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd like to kind of throw this out to the two of you, and starting with you, Denzel, just thinking about the kind of the stories this book is telling about the history of how um, black farmers, native farmers, other farmers lost their land, lost land at just ex- crazy rates mm-hmm. uh, in this country. Um, that we can talk about, but what this book says about what we're struggling for in terms of the future, what we have to start building in America to change the nature of all this. Right. Um, So Natasha's book is so important. I I remember when she told me so so many years ago that she was working on this this project back when we first met, and I I immediately thought about how important that was. Um, Firstly, just the importance of storytelling and story-keeping, Right, that that has been this tradition in uh, traditional communities, indigenous communities, um, African communities for um, eons. Just keeping the story and passing the story, and I, that was immediately the first thing I heard. Um, but then also sharing um, this information and these, you know, these personal personal lives with the public, so that people are are getting more connected with how food is produced, right? Because that, that is the, the big question in the last 10 years. Um, people are concerned about, well, how is my food produced? Where is it coming from? Who's producing it? And for a lot of, a lot of uh, our history in this country, it's more, more or less been faceless, right? The food just shows up. And right. When it's at the grocery store, it's there. And if it's not, mm-hmm. oh, the grocery store is out or, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, I'll just get mm-hmm. something else. Um, and so there's no connection to the people that are that are toiling, blood, sweat, and tears, um, to keep their land, to to uh, um, you know live their dream, practice their livelihood, uh, feed their families, doing something that that they really enjoy doing, and that's also important to all of us. Um, and so. Um, me learning about her doing the book and then seeing the book has been incredibly inspirational um, and emotional in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's, it's really important um, to tell this story and to keep this conversation at the forefront. And, you know, there's so many other conversations to be had and it's so easy to take for granted the food that we produced and the, the act and the art of producing food. You know, the, you know, it, and that in itself is revolutionary um, to take that back um, and then to to practice the food production in this traditional way is also incredibly revolutionary and then teaching other people how to do it um, and passing that knowledge forward is also incredibly important mm-hmm. um, so you know so it's a very complicated package with lots of layers L- lots of layers and, and you know and I think that you know, when you went when you went about this, um, Natasha. Let me ask Natasha: How many years have you been farming yourself? 
right now? How many years have I been uh-huh. on and off for about five or six years? Okay, so so uh, so here you are, a young new farmer, relatively mm-hmm. in, in the scheme mm-hmm. of things, right? Mm-hmm. And you're off doing these stories with all these people all over the country, many of whom are older than you. Some of you are around your age and around the same mm-hmm. generation, but many of whom are older. Are older. And, I, and I'm curious, you know, and, and so we look at this, we look at this this new farm, this new food movement in America, mm-hmm. and the image is white, right? Right. The image is mm-hmm. European descended Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what we're seeing is something else that's a foot here, and you're describing it in this book. So let's talk for a moment about the power of what this means, what the what the what this change means, this the the the. The, the, the color of food being embodied by the people who are actually growing it and bringing it to the market. What, what do you see changing? Or do you see something changing? Natasha. Sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm not sure I understand your question. So um, the change among these farmers, farmers of color um, today versus when? Because I feel like you know, and, and to, to kind of piggyback on the last question you asked as far as what are the solutions for the future. Yeah, go ahead. So many yeah. of the older farmers that I interviewed, you know, they're like, we, we didn't have the solution. <laughs> you know True. what I'm saying? Permaculture, sustainable agriculture, this is what we've always done. This is how we've grown. We knew how to use the chicken waste to, to fertilize our crops. Um, you know, from the beginning of time, we have to remember who taught the settlers how to grow. We have to remember uh, why certain areas of Africa were targeted to bring um, folks over and enslave them to start our, you know, rice fields because they already had that agricultural knowledge and the knowledge that even now, um, you know, uh, immigrant farmers are bringing from their own uh, more agrarian countries. So the solutions have our, uh, you know, I feel have been in, in these communities um, the solutions like cooperatives and, and c- communal um, economics and, you know, and like Denzel said, all these storytelling and preserving cultural food waste so that we don't have that disconnect from our food that has happened. But we've got to tap into it and we've got to really uh, lift up people in the community that are producing food and that are trying hard to preserve um, all of those solutions and lift them up and, and bring that to our communities. So, um as far as, you know, I guess to answer the question, I don't know if there's a, a huge change. I think the change is for young people like myself and people like Taz Walker and Christina and, and Blaine, who's worked with uh, Denzel at Five Teens Farm, all these really young revolutionary farmers who are bridging that gap and sitting at the knee of our elders and tapping into that history and, and, and then combining it maybe with some more innovative solutions and bringing that forward into the next generation. I feel like the, the big change that we need to see is uh, this younger generation, you know, picking up the pitchfork and, and, and pushing uh, a lot of the work that our ancestors did forward. Yeah, I think that we could bust something that's up before I jump in. It looked um, like you were. No. All right. I'm just going to try to make a witty comment. You can do that. It's a little too late next. I blew it for yeah, you right, tonight. It's too late. It's all right. right. I'll catch the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but, you know, what, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things you say in this book and has been said in the show before is that farmers in America now are 96% white and 87% male, as you write about in the book, Natasha, and also mm-hmm. that, that, that black farmers lose their land at three times the rate uh, mm-hmm. of white farmers in America. Um, and that's a reality, right? And, mm-hmm. and so people, whether it's African-American farmers or... Native people trying to reclaim the farming in their own communities 
or the immigrants coming over to say we're going back to the farm and want to take the land back and Latino people doing the mm-hmm. same thing in this country. So I mean that 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 but but the reality, the political reality is that the people we write about in this book are a minority, a serious minority mm-hmm. of numbers mm-hmm. when it comes to to putting their hands on land and becoming farmers. That's the push that has to change. Yeah. I mean, it's a political mm-hmm. question. It's a food question, it's a political question, and they're connected. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, what Denzel thinks about this, but, you know, we have seen some programs trying to bring in and support more of our minority farmers or disadvantaged, as the USDA titles them, farmers. And, um, you know, I just feel like that effort needs to increase um, a hundredfold. Um, but I also don't really want to rely on, you know, the upper political structure. Mm. Uh, we, it really has to come from the ground up, right? Um, so mm. how can we recruit more farmers? How can we uh, uh, reclaim our, our, our connection to the land and food and really communicate this as an urgent, um, really, crisis? Mm. Yeah, yeah, because it's a question almost, I think about, I know that you're a very political man, Denzel, as well as being a farmer, I mean, you have, you have a lot to say as you do on this program from time mm-hmm. to time as a, as a commentator, and that, and, and that you know, it, it's, it's been thinking of the conversation we had here the other day with people. I had the other day with people saying you can't overthrow capitalism; you have to overgrow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, this, mm-hmm. and so okay. that's also a metaphor for farming. Yeah, yeah. And I've been thinking about that to this I moment. Didn't. Yeah, that's good, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The uh, the government programs um, are you know, are, are difficult because, uh, one, you know, the language that that's being used can be a little problematic, right? D- mm-hmm. Disadvantaged farmers. <laughs> right. 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 And we understand right. that from historical Missing a leg. Missing, <laughs> uh, missing a leg. Right. right. Missing a tool, only got half a hole. Right. Right. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm expected to play a game here. <laughs> and compete, but I'm already <laughs> I'm already starting in a in a losing position. Um, but then also the you know the the programs um, they you know they they seem like they they're, they're going to be helpful, but they don't really fully encompass what the what the problem is. And then they're not very well um, advertised. You know, you really have to go out searching and talking mm-hmm. and asking the right questions and talking to the right person in these offices. Um, and, you know, and I don't necessarily know if, uh, if being straddled with a low interest loan is, is, is really the best thing, you know, or if, if, um, um, you know, you know, everybody needs, uh, assistance in, in, in different ways. And, and, you know, the first piece is just getting people interested in farming and educating them. Right. Right. And business and how to how to operate a business and marketing, um, you know, it's so so complicated and um, there's a steep learning curve. Um, and so just saying, oh well, you know, come and sit in on this seminar and l- learn how to be a minority <laughs> farmer um, doesn't quite doesn't quite get to it. But it's really important when there's folks like Natasha in the mix and the other young farmers and and all the young folks that are in the city um that are learning and growing um and they're and they're public they're seen you know and mm-hmm. they're becoming you know celebrities in a sense you know that's what attracts mm-hmm. attention that's what brings people you know it's just, it's action um mm-hmm. you know the the work that that um 
um, Pastor Heber Brown is doing in the city right. with the uh, um, food security network. I think all that kind of stuff is incredibly important. Um, and it's one way for us to get at the root of root of the problem. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all operating businesses and the business has got to make money, you know, and we right. want we want to exchange those dollars within the community amongst people that live where we are and amongst people that look like us. Um, and so that's important, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so the conversation has got to be opened up and and we all got to understand what it is that we want what what it is that we ultimately want to see you know i want to see young other young people operating businesses they don't have to farm you know but you, right. you can cook you know you can you go make cookies or whatever you know i don't know right. and, and I, th- I think part of the question were you about to say something natasha i'm sorry no i was just over here mhm <laughs> oh, gotcha that's what <laughs> i thought you okay right 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> so i mean w- w- one of the things you write about we talk about in this book is and some people some of the farmers have said to you um are that you have to you can't just rent the land. You also got to own the land right. if you're going to have any security. And the question is, how do you and how, how what banks? And I mean that in not a literal sense, but what 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 institution? What how how you how we collectively bank enough to make that happen? Right. Um, you know, I mean, because you know, I think about the woman who that you write about, Sandra Simone, who was the Alabama Farmer of the Year, and this very strong woman who then goes off and tries to get a loan, and they don't give her the loan from the agriculture because. Whatever reasons they have, they're misogynist, racist reasons for not doing it. Mm-hmm. So, but so something has to switch. So what, what, what do people say about that to you? And how do we start thinking about how ownership changes? Right. And, you know, I think that goes back to a little bit of um, what Christina and Taz would preach and looking at how, looking at a different way of owning land. Um, and what ownership means. I think that land ownership is one of the obvious biggest barriers, capital to to own land, um, accessible land for beginning young farmers, and to tell people not to rent the land, you know, (laughs) when you're out there struggling, um, sometimes that's the only choice. But if we can come together, you know, they were, Taz and Christina were looking at, um, you know, communally owning land. And we've had, we of course know of Shirley Sherrod and her um, communally owned, you know, Black Land Trust. And just looking at all different alternative ways to own and operate land and build community together, you know, like Denzel said, we don't all have to be farmers. If we have, um, you know, a strong communal economy where we can lift up farmers and, and, and be able to give them loans to, to get their land, or we have, um, you know, restaurants, black-owned restaurants supporting the farmers and black-owned markets. And, um, you know, we really have to think about this as one big communal effort. Uh, People think I'm always out there trying to recruit new farmers. (laughs) And although (laughs) that would be great, (laughs) you know, this is one big circle. Um, You know, you have to have all the the pegs in there working together. and I, I was I was taken there's so many quotes in here. I could I could spend today just pulling out different quotes from your book, but there's a there's a there's one quote in here, um again from Tierra Negra, but it was from somebody else, uh, from one of their mentors who is black and Native American and Okanichi and African American, yeah. a man named Elwood. Yeah. It says our ancestors are synonymous with the soil. Hmm. That one thought. You know, because on the other hand it's like that 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 I think both in some ways in native communities, but especially in the black community, people separated from that because of what that brings up historically, mm-hmm. sharecropping, mm-hmm. which is the new form of slavery and right. slavery. With, slavery. And you know what I'm saying that that it's a, it's a mindset change, 
It has to take place. It is a mindset change. and um, Or an understanding of who people really are and where we come from. Right. All right. Um, you know, and fortunately, uh, um, I, I, my upbringing was such that I, I, never, I never got that message because I essentially um, spent time on a farm. Um, At your grandmother's farm. Yeah, my, my grandmother's farm, my great aunts there. That that was home. You know, my my grandmother called that home, and so the 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 positive emotions, the nostalgia that that creates, and the experiences there, my own personal experience there. I never um, got to a, a place where I th- I thought farming was a bad thing for for black folks. Um, I definitely understand it, um, and. Um, it's uh, it you know that is that is something that we definitely have to have to com- combat in this industrial and now I guess technological age, where um, for a lot of folks it just doesn't make sense to be outside um, toiling with the soil, and you know in a metaphorical sense toiling with your ancestors to try to create a living, um, mm. because it's just it's not sexy you know it's uh it's uncomfortable, it's hot, calluses cuts. Um, um, you know, so it, uh, you know a lot of us are kind of cut from a different cloth to be to be outside doing that, and and that's a really difficult conversation. I mean, I've I've had those conversations with middle school students and teenagers and young adults, um, and uh, it's that's tough. Well, one it's of the things that that, that 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 Mr. Mr. Blue want to do in this town is they want to start uh, who are these African American organic farmers in the city who do an incredible mm-hmm. work and grow incredible food. Yeah. Um, Say that they want to start a uh, um, a 4-H club in the city. That'd, that'd be dope. Mm-hmm. You know, for yeah. for young people, for kids in school, to get mm-hmm. their hands in the earth to feel it. I mean, one of the things I think about what you just said is that there's a in your epilogue you have you, this book is is chock full of these incredible quotes from people and pieces. Um, and I will say also, Natasha, just you are a really, really good writer. Good writer. She's a good writer, isn't she? Oof, really good writer. <laughs> Thank you. This book could really well, be boring. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a National Geographic picture book. Right, 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 right. I mean, I, you know. How can I take these? These words, you know, I cannot take credit for that because it was the words of all of these farmers who just had, a, a, you know, amazing insight, who were just really, really intelligent, you know, like I said, revolutionary people. So I just had to figure out a way to put their words <laughs> down and not bore anybody. <laughs> Wait, it's not boring at all. It comes through the pages. It so. does roll. The book <laughs> rolls. And and you have this quote at the end by by Martin Luther King, everything that we see is a shadow cast by that which we do not see. Mm-hmm. Now, why, tell us why you picked that because I think it fits directly with what Denzel just said. Yes, everything we see exactly. So you know, I think that um, unfortunately that stigma, do, you know, does live in the black community and a lot of communities around farming and and. And, you know, we're looking at our connection with the land sometimes in a negative way, in a painful way. And while that pain and trauma is there, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing on that and not seeing the, the beautiful legacy with the land. And, and, you know, I even said in my opening chapter, when I found out kind of my own personal family history and it was giving me conflict, I said, am I, returning to a trade that my, you know, my great-grandmother would just roll over in her grave knowing that I was returning to this, that my ancestors worked to free me of, 
or am I returning to something and bringing back something that has been lost in my generation? And I think that's a really important question that we have to ask our kids. And I think focusing on, on our youth is, is definitely the way to go and to, to, to not look at agriculture and, and land in that way, in that light. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think that the connection with the past and the present and changing the mindset is, is part of the battle here. And in every community you touched on, whether it, it was South Asian, East Asian communities or Native communities or black communities, and, and, and there's this great quote from Melita Martinez, who she writes, she's a farm worker, she says, we Latino farm workers are the majority, and we come here, and it's a lot of humiliation for us. And many of us never think mm-hmm. about having our own farm because we feel degraded by the work. But I didn't want to put up with that anymore. Mm-hmm. I went back to the land. Hmm. And I think that's, there's something that has to, I think that in that way, kind of the, the past can inspire the future. Well, Most I mean, definitely. that's the point, right? right? We, you know, we, we have all these amazing stories, these amazing people that, that were trailblazers during their time that have these lessons. And we haven't learned from those lessons yet. You know, right. that, that, I mean, that is the issue. You know, we're having these conversations about, well, what, what should we do? What can be done? Um, what's the best way to attack this problem? And it's like Natasha said earlier, you know, when you sit down with the elders, um, they say to us, you know, this ain't, this ain't nothing new. This is how we mm-hmm. dealt with it. You know, we decided to stay here and we decided to make a living. Or I had this excess of chicken waste. You ain't telling me nothing, young, young man. I, I've been putting that on the tomatoes, you know, I mean, <laughs> right, right. you know, and it, and that goes and that goes along in all aspects of our lives. You know, when we talk with the elders, there's there's plenty that they have to share. That's I mean, that's what wisdom is. You know, that's why, you know, I try to get up under your feet, Mark, because, you know, you, you know, you, you have a very young spirit, but you got tons of experience. And, um, um. You know, we're not listening to the folks that we should be listening to. You know, you know, one thirty-eight-year-old and another thirty-eight-year-old trying to figure out this age-old problem doesn't isn't that helpful. Yeah, we're smart. We've read all these books. That's great. But what about r- real practical experience? And so then you bring the sixty-four-year-old in, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I remember how to how to work through that." And it's and it's really helpful. Um, and you know, and and in some ways, you know, that's why these like training programs for young farmers are really, really helpful because, you know, somebody who's been farming for 20 years gets hooked up with somebody who's been farming for five years. Right, right. That, that's where it has to roll that way. Yeah. And, and, I, yeah. and I think that's part of what your book does too, Natasha. You bring a lot of, I mean, a lot of people in your farming in this book are, are younger, but there are a lot of middle-aged and older people mm-hmm. in this book that you're mm-hmm. gleaning wisdom from them and sharing it with the rest of the world. Yeah, that was one of my goals. Um, you know, most of the farmers I interviewed were older, and, you know, they hold the wisdom. Mm-hmm. And they would complain about how young people weren't coming up and picking up the pitchfork and showing up. And, you know, then I have the, the, the chapter dedicated to the young people that are out there, and they're trying to bridge that gap. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Mark, um, when Taz Walker and Christina interviewed, you know, their elder, they called it, they called it eldership to be surrounded by elders, you know, not just mentorship. They called it, they have that eldership with, eldership. with their mentors. And uh, that's exactly what Elwood would say is, you know, that our, our ancestors are synonymous with the soil. All we have to do is dig deep to find those answers that are already there. Hmm. Um, so we, we need to be taking advantage of that, especially before they're gone. You know, the average age of the farmer is around 57. 
seven fifty eight. Right. For black farmers, it's about sixty three. Um, so we, you know, part of why I wanted this to be a storytelling project was to capture and preserve those stories and that wisdom, you know, in just this tiny sliver of this book uh, before they're gone. Well, I think this book is amazing, and I'm, I'm really happy my brother Denzel came in here for this part of the conversation with you, Natasha. And uh, you can meet Natasha Bowens tonight, August the 20th at 7.30 p.m. at Red Emma's Bookstore, Coffee House located at 30 West North Avenue. Uh, you can just go to redemmas.org for more information. We'll also have it on our show page. Uh, and she'll be back in Baltimore in September at the Baltimore Book Festival. More information for that is baltimorebookfestival.com. But do try to come out tonight, 730, Red Emma's Bookstore. Uh, go to redemmas.org for more information. So I want to thank my friend Denzel Mitchell of Sideseed Farm and Apiary uh, for being here today. And farmer, author, poet, uh, storyteller Natasha Bowens. For joining us today for Sound Bites, her book again is The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming. Thank you both so much for this conversation. It's been Absolutely. great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us. The Mark Snyder Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Del Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our assistant producer is Sienna Greaves. Our interns are Manifa Wilson and Shireen Yunus. Theme music is by Wal Matthews and Queen Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. Be your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Del Marvel Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.